I want to get rid of that this morning. And then I want to explain to you what Jesus had in mind. Do not judge. Judge not that you be not judged. We need to clarify at this point what judgment means and what judgment doesn't mean. John Stott says, This command is not a command to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. In other words, when Jesus says, do not, be, do not judge, it does not mean turn off your common sense thinking, shut your eyes, and never ever look at another person's life and see it for what it is. That's not what he's saying. He is instead pleading for us to be generous here. And I use the word plea because he allows us to do it. You can judge. Only remember that the measurement you meet out will be the same measurement God uses for you. You can do it. Just remember, this is what you're going to get. The word then generous here is a word and a thought that is concerned with mercy. This passage is less about judgment, about coming and saying that it is wrong to do A, because the Bible says A is wrong, or A is sin, whatever A stands for. It's less about that and more about when you do see a person doing A, do not be merciless. Do not condemn them that this is the only sin, that, they, that this is the unpardonable sin. We're not going to forgive them for this sin and hold it over their head forever. Getting pregnant before marriage is not the unpardonable sin. Sex before marriage is not the unpardonable sin. Yet sometimes we are merciless in how we apply that. So this passage is not saying, do not call fornication a sin or homosexuality a sin or adultery, or covetousness, or greed, or gossip, a sin. It's not saying that. It is saying that when you see it, when they have repented of their sin, be merciful. Jesus has not commanded us to throw our perceptibility of sin out the window. He himself teaches us to be perceptible to people and their sinful actions. You shall know them by the fruit they bear. In other words, judge their fruit. Don't give what is holy. The very, Verse 6 of this very passage, which I didn't include in my exegesis this morning but verse 6 of this very passage is a judgment don't give what is holy to the dogs how narrow-minded could Jesus be to call unbelievers dogs and pigs and cast not your pearls before swine if your brother sins 
Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If your brother sins and he doesn't listen to you alone, take two or three with you. If he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he doesn't let that, he doesn't listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, let him be anathemized. That all includes judging a person's actions as sin or as wrong. I can clearly see this person has sinned. I know that they've done it. I'm aware that they've sinned. I have to use that perceptibility. Jesus commands it in order for me to go on in the kingdom of God. He even expects it to happen in churches that sin is going to continue on. But here's how he wants us to deal with it. It is not to ignore it and never say, this thing is wrong. Jesus even says about the Pharisees, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. In other words, see their actions, perceive them as wrong, and don't do it. So either Jesus is speaking out of both sides of his mouth, or he doesn't mean what the postmodern paradigm has taught us he means. And I'll give you one guess who's going to win here. So then what did he mean? Judge not that you be not judged. When we read the rest of the passage, we see that what Jesus has in mind is censoriousness. That is, harsh judgment and not the abdication of critical assessment. When you publicly censure someone, you reprimand them openly. But censoriousness is slightly different here. Stotts defines censoriousness way. I love this. He says censoriousness, that's a, that's a big word, is a compound sin consisting of several unpleasant ingredients. It does not mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. When censorious, the censorious critic is, and listen to this description, because this is the description of what Jesus is saying, don't do. Don't be a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. Some people get a rise out of it. It's just so good to see somebody else screwing up their lives royally so that we can say, I didn't do it. We do it every time we read the internet. Whoa, whoo. We read that passage about that man who, who murdered 10 people. And we say, what a nut job. I'd never do that. And then you read a little bit further down from the story and he was a person just like you. Or the man who kills his wife or vice versa. Stephanie watch, watches all these shows on Saturday, and as I'm trying to write my sermon, I can hear it going on, and i got to get up and go watch to see who done it. i got to know how it ends. Investigate, you know, for investigate discovery. That's the only time I've ever heard you laugh at one of my jokes, Stephanie, in church. Investigate. And it always starts off in a small town. Yes, Guilty. It always starts off in a small town, and the couple had everything they ever wanted. 
And then humans do what humans do. They didn't have a healthy fear of God and a right understanding of themselves. And when everything started to spiral spiral out of control and that life insurance policy that they signed can pay off a lot of debt, they commit murder. We enjoy seeing that. We can point out how could anybody ever do that. But this fault finder puts the worst possible construction on a person's motives. He pours cold water on their schemes and is ungenerous towards their mistakes, concludes Scott. Ungenerous towards their mistakes. Notice that he makes a value judgment about the word mistake. That it's not the way it should be. The judgment we pronounce on others will be pronounced on us, says Jesus. And the measurement we use to judge others will be used on us. So then why shouldn't we judge simply this? We're no good at it. For two obvious reasons. We're not capable judges. And number two, we stand in need of mercy ourselves. Jesus asked two rhetorical questions. Number one... Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Why do you do that? Why is it that you can't see the most obvious thing, which is this beam coming out of your eyeball? Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here. But yet, you have microscopic vision of your brother's flaw across the room. How can you do that? How is it that you can look right past the beam in your eyeball, yet you can see the speck? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your eye? It should be no surprise to us that human beings scrutinize the minor flaws of others with pinpoint precision, yet look past the major sins of their own lives. John Nolan notes the verb change from to see... To notice in verse 3 and argues that the former has to do with the eyes while the latter has to do with the mind. Jesus asked, how could something so large as a beam in your own eye go unnoticed? Scientists have experimented on human consciousness and unconsciousness for decades and have always suspected that humans don't notice things they've subconsciously decided not to look for. They have subconsciously decided not to look for. Keith Payne, an associate professor of the Department of Psychology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who studies unconscious and unintended influences on thought and behavior, said in an article in Scientific American that hundreds of studies have backed up the idea that when attention is occupied with one thing, people often fail to notice other things right before their eyes. Humans prioritize what seems to be most important to them. This is also why, says Payne, being absorbed in a basketball game, I know nothing of this, being absorbed in a basketball game renders us blissfully oblivious to all requests to take out the garbage. I don't know anything about that. Sometimes my wife just, hello, are you hearing me? Now, he doesn't mention why the garbage always has to be taken out in the fourth quarter of the game, but (laughs) 
That's neither here nor there. But why do we do this then? Why do we, why do we selectively choose not to hear? My, my mother used to say about my father, he has selective hearing. He hears what he wants to hear. Here's the reason in this case. The reason why we miss the beam in our own eye is because we want to draw attention to the sins of others so we don't have to deal with our own sins. That's why. It is always easier to worry about the speck there than the beam here. That's going to take work. That person is so nearsighted that he cannot see a plank in his own eye, yet can see a speck in his brother's eye, shows that his vision is not physical disability, but rather a willful decision to ignore his own sins. We are choosing not to see the beam. Our decision to willfully ignore the sin in our own lives renders us useless to our brother who needs our help to remove the speck from his own eye. What does Jesus say in verse 5? First remove the beam, then help your brother remove the speck. This is a serious need. But there is a greater concern I have this morning. A theological concern about the person who judges mercilessly. The one who shows no mercy is missing a true mark of conversion. I want to spend the rest of the time on that. The one who shows no mercy is missing a true mark of conversion. The person who measures out justice harshly shows that he doesn't or she doesn't understand the mercy of God and therefore doesn't understand what his or her own salvation truly entails. Jesus warns that everyone who judges harshly and without mercy will be judged the very same way. Does this then mean that showing mercy to others is what truly saves us? If you're reading this text carefully, it could seem to be indicating that if we don't show mercy to people, we're not saved. That that's the litmus test for salvation. I want to explain to you why that is not what is being said. But that showing mercy to others does not save us. It is still a true mark of our conversion. It is an accidental result of our conversion in being saved. It is not what saves us. It is born out of our salvation. Mercy is not what saves us, at least showing mercy to others, is not the rule for salvation. It is, however, the mark of salvation. Let me explain. A mark of the unconverted person is an unforgiving spirit. But Christians are new creations in Christ and after Christ. By after Christ I mean we think Speak, act, pray, love, forgive, glorify God, all like Christ did. 
We are new creations in Christ, and we are new creations after Christ. I have been crucified in Christ, nevertheless I live. How do we live now? I'm still alive, I'm still a believer, now how do I live? I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I'm alive. So in one sense I'm dead, in a new sense I'm alive. How? I have been crucified in Christ, nevertheless I live not I, but Christ lives in me. So the life we now live is after Christ. It is the way Christ lived. We are being transformed into his image. Certainly none of us are perfect in this, and no one ever will be in this life. But of these qualities, mercy is such a crucial attribute of the converted life that for it not to be present in our lives or in the life of a proclaimed or professed believer is a most serious depravity indeed. This past Friday night, many of us went to watch Tara's play, Shakespeare, in the park. Are you nervous? (laughs) You were on stage in front of a bunch of people and now you're nervous now. (laughs) Well, now let's have fun. Um, We all went to watch Tara's play in uh, the park. She's an actress in uh, The Merchant of Venice. I've never been a Shakespeare fan. After that play, I'm a Shakespeare fan. It was awesome. Tara was awesome. Even for a Florida graduate, she was awesome. (laughs) And we had a great time and everybody was, there were so many people there, you all missed it. But I was so, so pleasantly surprised to see how many of our, of our church members were there. We had a nice time. It was nice and cool. It was a great time. And we went and saw this, and, and I'd never seen or never read The Merchant of Venice, but in the second act or the last act, or second to last act, tears welled up in my eyes when I heard Balthazar's plea to Shylock. Though justice be thy plea, Consider this, that in the course of justice, in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. Wow. Shylock in the play is seeking his pound of flesh. And he wants it. And he deserves it. Because that's the just thing to do. An agreement was made. He failed on it. But he wanted his pound of flesh, closest to the heart. And Balthazar, the doctor, says to Shylock in a plea, Though justice be your plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. In other words, Balthazar is saying what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18. You went to the king for mercy, and now you're not going to give it? You begged the king for a greater mercy, and and now on the lesser things, you're not going to give it? In that story, the tenant is thrown into prison till he can pay off his debt. And we could see that as a mark 
of we have to forgive in order to be forgiven. But the better question is, how can a believer rightly know the mercy he's received yet not show it to his brother? And I am not talking about the big things. I am not talking about how can you show mercy to the adulterous spouse. I know that's a big one. And yes, I think that we have to work towards mercy in that sense. I'm talking about the things that happen on a day-in and day-out basis that we refuse to show mercy over. The 100 denarii that could be wiped away and nothing happened. Shylock demands why he must show mercy to Antonio in the play. This is always the demand of the law, to simply measure out what is deserved. The act of mercy is itself contingent upon the validity of justice and the law and its claim to fairness. But justice is an impersonal scale, meeting out only what is deserved, no more, no less. But imagine that you found yourself or we found ourselves in front of a perfect judge knowing perfectly the law and knowing perfectly how we've broken the law. Imagine that the judge had written the very law himself knowing how perfect and fitting that law was when he wrote it. Imagine that that judge wrote that law down first on your very heart And so he knows it's there. And then in case you didn't know it, he wrote it down on stone tablets with his very finger. Imagine that that judge viewed this law as a gift to his people. Certain that if they lived by this law, they would live long and well in the land. Imagine that when he gave this perfect law to his people, they broke it. Not by accident, but on purpose. Imagine that they rejected the good and perfect law that the good and perfect judge gave to them and imagine that the penalty for rejecting such a good and perfect law was nothing short of immediate death. What then would we ask for if we stood in the courtroom of this judge? Justice or mercy? What is right for the judge to do is to swiftly mete out his perfect justice against the lawbreaker. The just thing is always the right thing to do. The just thing is always right. When people die, that is right. If you believe the Bible, don't ask how can someone die. That is right. Because we have broken God's command and stand condemned. And the wages of sin is death. It's the right thing to do. Shylock is in the right to ask Balthazar in the play. What compulsion, under what compulsion must I be merciful? Because in truth, we must not be merciful, we must be just. Listen to me. Make sure you get this if you miss anything this morning. 
we don't have to be merciful. God does not have to be merciful. He has to be just. If God has to be merciful, you can't call it a gift. You call it a wage. But mercy is a gift. You can't earn it. It is an act of God born out of his goodness, whereby he pardons our sins, adopts us as children, and endows us with the inheritance of his riches in heaven. But the story of the gospel is not that God has failed to be just. I have already said that God must be just. Justice is right and mercy is good and right and good are two totally different philosophical categories. God has to be just. He doesn't have to be right or merciful. But mercy is good and justice is right. And the truth of Scripture is that God is both. And we see this most beautifully in the person of Christ. On the cross, God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3.26 Christ is our mercy seat, says Steve Nichols. There in and through Christ, God meets us. When Moses came down from the mountain, the glow of God's presence shone brightly on his face. He covered his face so that the Israelites would not witness the glory fade. But Paul tells us that our hope in Christ Jesus is not like it was with Moses. The glory of the old covenant has been superseded by the glory of the new covenant. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. The glory of the old covenant is the justice of the law, but the surpassing glory of the new covenant is the mercy of grace. And the mercy of grace never fades from the believer. The old law is not like the new law. The new law is a better law. The new covenant is a better covenant. Christ has obtained a ministry, says the writer of Hebrews, that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But by his justice and mercy, God offered his son in the new covenant, who knew no sin to be sin for us. And by grace, the Lord laid on him in his justice the iniquities of us all. There was a mystery here that theologians call imputation. God has mysteriously placed the sins of all men on Christ and on the cross. And his righteousness has mysteriously been placed on us, the sinner. But by that grace, 
we are being transformed into His image. Therefore, in the image of God and His mercy, render to others that same mercy. I could almost hear, and I could hear Vilna quoting the very words of the play on Friday night. But I could almost hear my fellow Christian brothers and sisters sitting around me at the play on Friday night, worshiping God in spirit. As Portia spoke her famous words, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and blesses him that takes. Tis the mightiest in the mightiest. What will mercy cost you this morning? Nothing. Nothing. Just give it. Because you have received it. Mercy is twice blessed. Blessing the one who gives and the one who takes. It is the mightiest of the mightiest, for by it everyone is blessed. This is truly a good thing. But who is there in your life this morning whom you are withholding your mercy? From with whom you are holding your mercy? There is someone. There is someone this morning in your life who you could give mercy to and you are withholding it. But mercy is not strained. The law of justice, in other words, cannot coerce you to give mercy to anyone. It is impotent in doing it. And so I don't appeal to you to look to the law this morning as to why you're right in holding that grudge and not showing mercy to your brother. Don't look to the law. The law is going to always tell you you're right in holding your grudge. Because they owe you. And it's right. But look beyond the law. And look to mercy. Mercy is not strained. You're well within your right to demand your pound of flesh. But only remember that with that judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. The measure here is not quantitative but qualitative. It would be well to remind ourselves the words of Jesus. We forgive not seven times, but seven times 70. It's, an, it's not a mathematical quality or quantity. It is a qualitative difference. Appealing to justice versus appealing to mercy. And children of the new covenant appeal to the law of mercy and grace. Therefore, his children give mercy. And grace. There are only two scales of measurement. Justice or mercy. But I ask you this morning. Which one is your plea before God? Justice or mercy? Which one do you wish for God to measure you by? God has not made our mercy for others the measurement of our justification but rather it is a marker of our new creation. John said it this way. 
How can you claim to know God while hating your brother or sister? Listen to what he says. Your justification is in knowing God through Jesus Christ being in him. But how can you claim that and you hate your brother and your sister? How can you claim it? How can you know God truly? To know God truly is to know of his mercy. To taste of the sweetness that in Christ and in Christ alone we are perfectly in him. Identified perfectly in him. That all of the reckonings, judicial reckonings. And dealings of God are found in him. How can we know that we have received mercy and not give it? How can you, says John, claim to know God while hating your brother and sister? For anyone who loves God must also love his brother and sister. But what do we make of our knowledge of God and man? To know God as he truly is is to know that he dwells in unapproachable light and we deep down into the tombs of darkness. As Calvin said, we cannot seriously aspire to God before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. Only the condemned person would be so bold to ask, on what compulsion must I be merciful? I said... Only the condemned person would be so bold to ask. Listen to this. Only the condemned person would be so bold to ask, on what compulsion must I be merciful? Upon the grace of God must ye be merciful. To those of you who are immune to condemnation in Christ Jesus alone, we are being transformed from the glory of one image into the glory of another, working diligently to reflect the image of Christ, especially in the character of mercy. What then is it for you to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you? 